This podcast was first broadcast on Fresh FM, the top of the South community access radio station. For more information on Fresh FM, as well as links to other great local podcasts, go on our website freshfm.net or download the accessmedia.nz app. Kia ora, I'm Charlie Cuff, a Year 10 student from Nelson College, and welcome to the Gen Z Time Machine. In this episode, I talk to Sandy Stevens about her work for the United Nations. Could I start with asking, how did you come to work for the United Nations? Oh, that was because I was at school and in Nelson Girls College. Mm. And there were a lot of famines in India, and there were pictures in the paper that were rather gross of children and, and adults dying in the streets. So I, I wrote a letter to the minister of the, at the time, was Indira Gandhi, Minister of Interior, about how we could help as a school. And I got a letter back saying, there's really not much you can do, we've got to do our own thing, and you need to get your education. So it, was, it wasn't a flat refusal, but it was a polite, no, no thanks. <laughs> but it didn't put me off. When I was in Otago um, at university, I heard about volunteer service abroad. Mm-hmm. And although I had to do teaching for a couple of years after that to pay my bond to the government, mm-hmm. um, I applied for volunteer service abroad after that. So I was, you know, two years out of university, two years teaching experience, and applied to teach nutrition at the Fiji School of Medicine. So that's what I did first. And while I was there, I was, um, after the two years, I got a telegram from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs asking if I was interested in a job in Malaysia. Same sort of work, nutrition, food security, etc. And so I did that for four years in Malaysia under the Colombo Plan. And again, uh, they were fairly desperate to get women into these fields at the time. So I got another telegram from someone asking if I was interested in a UN job. And those were jobs in Botswana. There were three choices, Botswana, Papua New Guinea and uh, Swaziland. And I chose Papua New Guinea because it was, I thought, closer to home. But actually it took me longer to get home from there than it did from South Africa if I'd gone there. So that's how I got into it. It was really just, it wasn't something I sought, but um, it fell into my lap. I think because I enjoyed it and because that became known. It's a fairly small group of people who work in that area and so the word spreads around who's good at their job and who's yeah. not. I, I came into this thinking that you had just been involved in food but it sounds like you were Yeah, it's got much broader because of the the interdependence of the needs. So food alone, you know, you can eat food but if it all goes out in a rush of diarrhoea, <laughs> it's not going to benefit the body much. Yeah. So you have to tackle water and I mean, my job, in that way I was lucky because as a rural sociologist, it's a very broad field looking at the social side of life. My, my colleagues in agriculture, the hard forms of agriculture, were much more limited than what they could recommend. Had to be, I mean, a soil scientist had to test the soil and see what was missing and put it in. But I could say, well, that's going to cause this problem or that problem. Debt, debt was a huge problem. If they had to start using seeds that required fertiliser and they didn't have money Mm. then they would get into debt straight away or if they had an animal a new kind of animal they didn't know how to look after properly like chooks 
the chooks that we use that have so much meat on them are not what they used to. They have these scrawny chooks that can put up with any disease and they never die. And they wait till they're about 10 years old before they kill them and eat them. So if you introduce the white leghorn or one of those that we're used to, they will get disease and die before they're even a week old. So they've got to have vaccination. And if the people don't understand that, then they would just lose all their checks and go back to what they used to before. So that's where I had to work closely with my colleagues to make sure that thing, when I saw a problem, was there a scientific or technological solution to that problem? Or was it a socio-cultural issue where we had to do some education and coaxing to change their understanding of what was happening and maybe change some habits they had? Your healthcare side of your work, mm -hmm. uh, did that involve vaccinations? Well, that was the UN has um, a WHO World Health Organization that takes care of that. So if we were aware of a, an outbreak of a disease and there was a vaccination available to treat it, we might contact WHO or we might just contact the government health department to see if they had people ready to come down and do a mass vaccination pro program. But in most of those countries, no, the rural people didn't get vaccination. They didn't even believe in it. They didn't believe you get disease that way. Oh, yeah. But they did believe in the needle. Um, they believed in antibiotics because mm -hmm. they'd seen miraculous cures with antibiotics. Uh -huh. So even if they didn't need antibiotics, they would want them. Mm -hmm. And I remember even in Thailand, they used to, a lot of people I worked with used to take amoxicillin as a prophylactic just to prevent whatever might come along. But no, we had, I mean, the UN has branches for everything. And ours was food and agriculture. There's WHO for health, there's UNESCO for education and science, technology, there's the UNICEF for children, there's UNIFEM, there's agencies, ILO for labour. What was life like working under the United Nations? Did you travel around often? In my job I did because it was in rural areas and we were focusing on the poorest areas of the poorest countries. So um, I started off, as I said, in Malaysia, but from there, was the first UN job was, was the Food and Agriculture Organization. It was in Papua New Guinea. And that was because in the 70s, late 70s, um, they were looking at independence and they were looking at having to manage the agriculture sector without Australian input. The colonial government was the Australians at the time. So they wanted to train a lot of local uh, young people in agriculture, degree, diploma and certificate level courses, but they hadn't thought of having women in the courses wow. because Australians at that time didn't. You know, even in Australia it was very rare for a woman to do agriculture at university level. Mm -hmm. So they got the United Nations to provide someone, and that was me, to look at the curriculum and see what subjects could um, be integrated for girls to study. So I suggested they have nutrition as one new subject, which boys and girls would both do. Mm -hmm. And then when the things like farm mechanics and farm building construction courses were on, the girls could also do that, but maybe some of the lighter work, if it was very heavy work, they obviously weren't as suited. And we had um, not only the nutrition, but we soon had things like family planning, very short courses and things that these agricultural workers needed to be aware of because they'd be working out in remote areas with rural communities, mm -hmm. introducing new ideas generally, not just agriculture. Yeah. So were you quite a pioneer? Um, in that it was quite, yeah, at the time it was thought to be very 
new and not very well received at first by some of the Australians. Uh -huh. yeah. They used to call women Sheilas and rather um, off jokes were made about the idea of having women in the courses. Mm. What did uh, Papua New Guinea look like? Okay. It was in the areas I was working, in the remote parts of the highlands and some of the remote islands, it was very primitive. The technologies were very, very basic. Mm -hmm. There was a tool called the digging stick, which was the main agricultural implement for women who grew nearly all the food mm -hmm. for home consumption. So it was only commercial crops that the Australians introduced that were done by men. Mm -hmm. Coffee, tea, um, export crops. And the women were still producing food. But the problem was that big companies like Palm Olive would come in and take the best fertile flatland for palm trees. Mm. And the food production would be pushed onto the marginal lands and the women would have a hard job growing enough food to feed their families once they're on that poor land. Mm. So they needed new technologies and new um, seed material and so on to boost production then. Mm -hmm. So what were you doing? Were you bringing in... Oh, I was in, so they had agricultural colleges that were giving diplomas, three-year courses for boys and girls. Mm. And at the end of three years, they got a diploma in agriculture and went out as agricultural extension workers. So their aim was to um, give advice to farmers, both men and women, about increasing productivity, reducing drudgery, mm. and trying to make quality standards, so if they wanted to sell crops they would get a better price for them if they were standardised. Mm -hmm. So marketing was part of it and general production, processing and marketing of agricultural products. And then there was the degree programme at the University of Papua New Guinea which was four years and they had a, just the subject of nutrition was brought in for them. Mm -hmm. I think there was one girl doing the degree the first year they brought girls in, only one was brave enough to go. Mm -hmm. After a year there, when I'd sussed out the possibilities of these courses, we got a staff member from the Food and Agriculture Organisation. One was Dutch, one was Swedish, one was Philippine and one was Irish. And then they taught the courses that I had developed the previous year. So that was the second year. The third year we recruited local counterparts to work with each of those staff so that they learned how to take over those teaching roles. And after four years our project phased out and it's run by locals. Oh, yeah. Wow. And during that time, the country became independent. Mm -hmm. So Australians started to leave and more Papua New Guineans came into those roles of yeah. agricultural ministry people. What were you doing in Mongolia? Mongolia, I went many times to Mongolia. The first project there was one to try to see what kind of trees could feed animals, the leaves from a tree that would feed animals because they were so short of pasture. Mm. The problem was the population was growing and some of the people didn't have enough land to feed the 200 animals they needed. Each family needed about 200 animals to just keep their own family in milk, meat, fur for their clothing um, and whatever else they used, animals, tallow to make candles and so on. And the tree that the forestry people found worked well was poplar trees. So they were introducing poplars, but the reason I was there was to look at who would do the work associated with nursery, growing the seedlings and planting them out. In Mongolia it's fine, men and women can go out together and do the work together, so it wasn't an issue of men and women, but um, how much time they had and whose land they would plant the trees on and 
who would own the timber and who would own the leaves and how many branches of that family and how many... Those disputes could cause problems. So, uh, yes, I did that. And then I went to another project in Tibet where... Well, that's not... That's China, I guess, but sort of... They live like the Mongolians. Um, that was, again, to see what process, food processing could be done so that they had more food to sustain them over winter when they couldn't grow anything and they couldn't, their animals, they didn't have enough to keep them going through the winter. So looking at food processing, preserving foods, drying and smoking and bottling. They, bottling was no good for nomads because they can't carry heavy loads like that, but dried foods, that was quite common. And growing in their frost-free days that they have in the year, which is quite short, 120 days maybe, to grow all their food for the winter, um, you've got to look at quick growing crops and so I would consult with the horticulture people about what crops could provide nutritious food. What would you say was the highlight of your career? I don't know because you know each country is so different and it's like saying what was my favourite country. Each one offered different things so mm -hmm. I wouldn't have one highlight but maybe it's nice to see things that kept going after we left and that's a challenge to do things in a way that um, people can manage after you've gone mm -hmm. because so often I saw technologies that have been given to a country or a village or a community by foreign aid donors and after three months they don't work and no one knows how to fix them or where to get spare parts or what. So I think some of the projects that I was involved in that did go on for a long time, even the Liberia one went on for a long time. It's very, it's, it's a highlight in a way to know that you left behind something that the people embraced and carried on. Where else in the world did you work? Well, um, as I said, I'd had four years in Malaysia before Papua New Guinea, and that was another four years. From there, I went to our headquarters in Rome, and I was there for two years doing project feasibility studies going out to different countries that wanted similar kinds of programs and during that time one of the countries I went to was Liberia in West Africa and the Minister of Agriculture there um, I got on really well with him so he asked me to come back and run the project for them and I was quite happy to do that because Rome work was endless conferences and you know it wasn't really the hands-on work that I enjoyed so I went my job was kept for me in Rome if I didn't make it, but I did make it through Liberia for four years. There was a coup while I was there, and the Minister of Agriculture that I was working with was executed. Thank you for listening. Join me, Charlie Cuff, next week as I continue the conversation with Sandy about life in Liberia and surviving the military coup. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this podcast available by funding the Access Media Project. Other great podcasts from Fresh FM are available through the accessmedia.nz app or our website freshfm.net.